Well, every once in a while before the sermon, I have to give a disclaimer. Uh, Sometimes before a sermon, I have to give a big disclaimer. And so let me just say before I begin preaching, uh, the topic that we're talking about this morning is sexual sin in the church. So let me just say that if you were on the fence about whether or not to bring your kids down to children's ministry, let me strongly encourage you to bring your kids down to children's ministry today if you haven't already done so. PG-13+. plus. Uh, So uh, I would just say that would be the wisest thing you can do. As you know, we've been learning from the teachings of Christ, uh, and we are going through the seven letters he sent to seven churches in the book of Revelation. We've already been to Ephesus, where he told them to bring back the love. They were doing good at truth. They were doing really bad at loving each other. We went to Pergamum, where he said, you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. They were going to have to endure. Then we went to Sardis, which was a church primarily filled with unbelievers who thought they were saved. And he said to them, hey, wake up. You're not even saved. Get saved and then follow me. Today we arrive at the church in Thyatira. And some passages in the Bible are meant to scare you. Uh, They're there to teach you to fear God. This letter to the church in Thyatira uh, is meant to terrify you. There's really no easy way to say it. It's meant to terrify you. Uh, It's a letter written to Christians who are caught up in sexual sin, and the message today is basically this. Time's up. Time's up. God is saying, time's up. Repent. My judgment is near. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is uh, so direct, and today I know this is a very hard word to our people about a very relevant topic. Uh, So Lord, my prayer is that you would cut through all of the self-deception, cut through all of the rationalization, cut through uh, all of the lies. And I pray that you would speak truth to your people who are caught in sexual sin. Lord, may they understand that this message is aimed to warn us, to turn us back to a place of blessing before your judgment comes. I pray that that warning would be heeded. In your name, amen. Okay, turn to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and uh, each church is given a different letter, and in uh, most of the letters, Christ starts by noticing some really good things going on that he likes to see. So thankfully, there's a short but, you know, punchy list right away of some things that Christ really loves about the church in Thyatira, but he almost says it quickly, like, Did you ever have to clean your room when you were a kid and mom came in to inspect how well you did? And she like, okay, you made the bed, you know, you rearranged the bookshelf, but she'll find what you left undone, right? Like she's like, good, 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 good. But if you didn't dust on top of the cabinets, like she's going to get there. It's almost like Christ is walking into their church and he's like, yeah, good, uh uh-huh, good, you got this, but, and then he gets right at it. But let's take a moment and talk about six things that Jesus loves to see in our church. Let's read first in... uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, it's in verse 18. I'll read, you follow along. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write this, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He wants you to know who's talking to you this morning. Who is it? Who does he think he is? This is Jesus. He's the Son of God. In Thyatira, they had... uh, temples to Apollo or a form of Apollo, and they believed that Apollo was a son of Zeus, a son of the main God. Jesus is like, no, no, I'm the son of God. 
He says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. Eyes like flames of fire, that's kind of a description of eyes that see through everything. Darkness. Meaning he sees everything in your life. His eyes penetrate clearly into all areas of your life. And there's a tinge of judgment. Penetrate to see and to judge what is sinful. What does it mean that his feet are like burnished bronze? Well, he has a bright and glorious foundation to his rule or even to his being. Um, It means that he has splendor and strength to crush adversaries who rise up against his authority. That's what this symbolizes. But it's important to know that in Thyatira, they were really big into uh, metal. They were metalsmiths. And so uh, bronze, you know, the idea of bronze being smelted or, you know, being like in liquid form, very bright, they would know that. They'd see that every day. Check this out. Here's some pictures of metal, you know, in this day and age, just being melted down and formed and molded. And, and that's, that's what many of them would see at work. And Jesus, when he says, my eyes are like flaming fire, my feet are like burnished bronze, he's giving them an object by which they can recognize his glory and his purity and holiness and his power. Who is it that's talking? It's Jesus, the Son of God. He is the authority over the church and over the world. Verse 19, he says, I know, and there's uh, six things that he lists. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. These are things Jesus loves to see in every church. So really quickly, we're going to go through them. Six things Jesus loves to see in our church. Write this down. Hey, do right things. Do, do right things. Righteous things that accompany salvation. He sees your works. Works don't save you, but works show that you have a saving faith. James 2.18 says this. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And listen, I will show you my faith by my works. Meaning my changed behavior proves my changed heart. The heart changes first, but the life has to change with the heart. Second, love one another. This is the second sub-point. Do right things, love one another. It says here, I know your works and your love. He's looking down and he's seeing that this church truly cares for each other. They, they really are building stronger bonds. You know, in our small groups right now, we're going through a curriculum that's aimed at helping us love one another better. Uh, you know, maybe you come to church because you want to get more truth. That's good. But church is not just for truth. Church is to make you a more loving person, right? Be imitators of God, therefore. Live a life of love. Uh, So don't just come for another Bible study. Don't just turn into a giant water tower filled with biblical information. You know, get a big head. Come to learn to love others more deeply. That's what church is supposed to be about. Hey, I love that you're doing right things. I love that you're loving one another. Here's the next one. Walk by faith. He says, I see your faith. Saving faith is an instant in time that changes every moment after that. When you believe Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, died on the cross, rose again, you repent and follow him, you are saved by faith. Walking faith, though, is when you follow him through every moment of your life. That's walking by faith. That's walking faith. He says, I see your faith. Next, serve one another. Do right things, love one another, walk by faith, serve each other. Serve each other. The word for serve comes from our word that we get from deacon. It's, uh, it means table waiter. Deacon means table waiter. It means one who meets the material needs of another person. So he looks down and he sees Christians doing things for other Christians. Uh, 
He sees me noticing a need in your life. He sees me giving either financially or this would be kind of benevolence. But you're actually concerned about the needs of fellow Christians and you've taken physical action to meet the needs of others. He says, I see it and I love it. Next, patiently endure trials. Patiently endure trials. In order to patiently endure trials, you have to have a trial. See? So some of the commands in the scripture can only be obeyed when God sends a wrecking ball through your living room window. How are you supposed to learn to patiently endure trials unless God allows trials into your life? So patiently enduring trials, he sees that some of their people are going through some tough things. And he sees that they're patient, that they're enduring, they're not giving up hope, they're not letting anger take root, they're not falling away into into sin and, and into doubt. They're patiently enduring trials. And Jesus sees it, and Jesus loves it. Next, grow stronger. Do right things, love one another, walk by faith, serve each other, patiently endure trials, grow stronger. He says here, I see that your latter works exceed the first. Meaning, compared to you a year ago, you've come a long way. You're not the same follower of Christ you were two years ago. He said, I see your growth. You're doing more. You're doing it better. And I love it. I love that you're not stuck in the mud. I love that you're not falling away. I love that you are pressing on. I see it. And I love it. But again, it's like he's like, yep, faith, uh-huh, works, uh-huh. Where's he going? He's walking right past all of our good stuff. Where's he going? And then he's like, but there's this. We didn't think he'd find it. That, but there's this thing here that I really want to talk to you about. And he says in verse 19, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless... They repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Here's the first thing you can write down. Jesus says, stop tolerating sin in my church. Stop tolerating sin in my church. Often Christians, because they have all these other good things going on, assume that they can also have their sin. I'm doing right things. I'm loving. I'm walking by faith. I'm serving other people. I'm enduring trials. I'm growing stronger. And I want to keep my sexual sin. What's wrong with that? And Jesus walks right past everything and says, stop tolerating sin in my church. The word tolerate means to release or let go. Meaning there was this woman in Thyatira who was a leader in some form. Let's let's say she was uh, leading women's ministry. And she had a teaching gift. And, uh, and they let her, they released her to do what she was doing. So he's primarily right now hollering at the people and the leaders who are releasing her, tolerating her, allowing her to do what she's doing without confronting her. What is she doing? Contextually, we're not sure, but it mentions food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. So we think what was going on was If you were like a metalsmith or some carpenter or tradesman in Thyatira, you'd be probably involved in like a guild, which would maybe be like a union today. 
only the unions were fused with the idol temples. So like Apollo, the, the god, he was the sun god, you know, would kind of be the mascot of your union. And when you went to a union meeting, it would kind of be held in the temple. So imagine you as a Christian now going to the temple. And then in the meetings, they'd eat. So what they'd do is they'd have a religious service, so to speak, and offer up food to these false gods. And then they'd bring the food down, and that's what you'd eat. In that setting, eating food sacrificed to idols is a sin. Now, often they would sell this meat after it's been sacrificed in the marketplace too, and Christians were free to buy that meat and eat it. Okay, but when it's part of the ceremony where you're almost endorsing that God, God says, don't do it. You can't do that. Now, some of these, uh, some of these temples also involve temple prostitutes. So imagine Mike here goes to the union meeting, and they feed him a great dinner, right? It was sacrificed to an idol, but they feed him a great dinner, and then after he's, you know, plastered, then they bring in the temple prostitutes, and things get real spiritual. Okay, so then Mike comes to church, and the women's ministry leader is telling him, well, that's perfectly okay. You can be a Christian, and you can do that. You mean he just slept with a prostitute last night, and he's here tonight? Yeah, that's fine. That's what she was saying. In fact, she's saying, I've done it too. She's doing it. Um, And the church is allowing her to teach that. So they've allowed this to go on. And Christ says, stop tolerating sin in my church. She's justifying it somehow. She's trying to tell them that what she's teaching is prophecy. The gift of prophecy in the New Testament seems more, this version of the gift seems more to be a person who would come to you and say, hey, God wants me to tell you something, or he gave me a unique revelation that I'm supposed to give to you. Um, It's not like her teachings would get in the Bible. It seems to be more of a common form of prophecy. So she's saying, hey, you can sleep with temple prostitutes. Hey, you can go ahead and commit adultery. Uh, You can eat that food sacrifice to idols. And God stamps it. He told me to tell you. He told me to tell you that's okay. She may have also been justifying it by saying things like, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to quit the union? Are you going to lose your job? He wants you to provide for your family. Some Christian you would be if you stopped doing it. Where else are you going to meet lost people? I mean, go to the temple. You can be a witness for Christ, right? You're going to lose all those attachments. How are you going to? Who knows how she was justifying it, but she was justifying it. The word tolerate in our day and age is a militant virtue. Tolerance is imposed by force. In fact, if you make any objective claim that's binding on all people, you're branded intolerant. You're intolerant. Intolerance is a virtue to be able to you know, act lovingly towards someone who doesn't share your specific belief system, but sometimes tolerance is a sin. And in this case, tolerating sin in the church of Christ is a sin. So stop tolerating sin in my church. Christ also calls her a name. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was probably not her name. If it was her name, her parents didn't like her very much because Jezebel was one of the most loathed, hated, wicked women in the Old Testament that there ever was. She was a queen. She was married to King Ahab, who was one of the worst kings ever. And what Queen Jezebel, the first lady, did is, first of all, she hired 850 false prophets, paid them from the government's money, I don't know how you feel about the current administration, but imagine if Michelle Obama, as her next act as the first lady, established, you know, she hired 850 Hindu priests and she started paying them with government funds. What did she pay them to do? Well, imagine if they started the Department of Religious Discrimination and they went out and they started killing Christians. Meet Jezebel. That's what she did. Her prophets killed the true prophets. She was wicked. 
And Christ says, this woman reminds me of her. I will call her Jezebel. She's a leader in women's ministry. She's a love teacher. She's, I will call her Jezebel because that's how I feel about her. Write this down. Sexual sin provokes God. Sexual sin provokes God. doesn't matter who a person is, what they say they are. If they're involved in sexual sin and they're endorsing it in the church, they're provoking God. God is angry. He's preparing painful consequences. The book of Revelation mentions sexual sin more than any other New Testament book. Nineteen times it comes into the book. Nineteen times sexual immorality is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And sexual sin will lead you to hell forever. It's a sin punishable by eternal torment. The Bible calls us to not be deceived. Well, if sexual sin provokes God, what is sexual sin? How do we sin sexually? Well, it's good to know what sexual sin isn't. God's plan is one man and one woman who enjoy sex on a regular basis in the commitment of marriage. That's God's plan. One man, one woman, get married, enjoy sex on a regular basis. That way, that plan leads to the most pleasure, the purest form of that pleasure, and the least amount of pain. If you do it any other way, it may lead to temporary pleasure, but it's fleeting, and it leads to a lifetime of pain in one form or another. The problem is that the alternatives promise you more pleasure, and they deliver more pain. While God's way may take more pain on the front end when you're waiting, but far more pleasure over the long haul when you're enjoying You'll reap what you sow. If you follow God's plan, he'll fill your life with joy. If you don't, he'll fill your life with pain. Specifically, sexual sin in the Bible is all sex outside of marriage. So premarital sex, it's called fornication. If you're not married and you're sexually active, that's a sin. Homosexuality, if you act on it, is a sin. It's not God's design. And don't let anyone tell you, well, the Bible said that then, but that doesn't apply today. The Bible's clear. It's a universal truth. It doesn't grow old. It's not culturally bound. Sexual activity and behavior is condemned by the Lord from creation on. It's not God's plan. It's a passion that he's placed in a person that's finding its direction to the wrong outlet. Bestiality, incest, child molestation, prostitution, even gratifying others sexually through various ways, including oral sex. That's all sin. Where does God draw the line? If I'm with someone who I'm not married to, where's the line? The Bible says if you look lustfully upon a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, meaning he draws the line at the eye, meaning you can't even look and think lustful thoughts about that person. How much more can you actually do things that satisfy that lust? You can't. It's a sin. Sexual sin provokes God. Adultery is sex with a married person. You're married and you're having sex with someone or you're having sex with someone who is married. That's adultery. That's sin. Pornography is adultery of the heart. It's a sexual sin where you're enjoying sexual gratification uh, through someone else who's not your wife. It's adultery of the heart. Porn is a $4.9 billion industry. Do you hear that? $4.9 billion is creating a world of pleasure that for anyone with a smartphone is in your pocket every day. It's right there. $4.9 billion is aimed at filling your life with porn. 
260 new porn sites go live daily. Today there are 260 sites, porn sites, that weren't there yesterday. The most popular day to view porn, take a guess, Sunday. One of our pastors once caught someone looking at porn in this church, during church. Um, Hey, what's your plan? What's your plan? Do you have a plan? Is your plan to sin, repent, repeat, sin, repent, repeat, feel bad, give it up for a while, go back to it? It's a bad plan. Uh, Porn can destroy your marriage. Porn can destroy destroy your sexual wiring before marriage so that it uh, hurts your sex life in marriage. Um, It's sin, and it's harmful. And while you will take, you'll take a very small amount of pleasure from that, a a tic-tac of pleasure, you're going to have a world of pain because of it. And you see, God has a world of pleasure stored up for you in the safe confines of marriage. You might have to endure the pain of waiting temporarily before you get to enjoy it. Sexual sin provokes God. Stop tolerating sin in my church. Here's the next sub-point. Sinful leaders provoke God. Sinful leaders provoke God. This woman was some form of a leader, and so Christ talks about her first, judges her first. Leaders aren't held to a higher standard. Um, leaders are punished more when they break the standard. Okay, God's got the same standard for you and me. If I violate it, my judgment will be more strict. My punishment will be more severe. All right, That's the way it works. So this, this leader, she gets addressed first. And it says she's seducing or leaving. The word means lead off the trail or lead off the way. So uh, check this out. This is a picture from Sochi, the Olympics. There were some trails that they told people don't go on. That sign shows people one trail that they weren't supposed to walk on. All right, and what this woman is doing is she's saying, all right, I'm a leader, I'm a teacher, why don't you follow me? Here we go, right past that sign. She was leading God's people off the safe trail of his word. She was leading them to destruction. Sinful leaders provoke God. Sinful leaders provoke God. Uh, I remember at my last church, not a pastor at that church, but a pastor I was affiliated with. Um, He had been developing a relationship with a leader from his church. He was married. He was starting another relationship with another woman because he felt he had married the wrong person. That's sin. He's deceived. And this is a pastor. And there are churches all across America who don't confront sexual sin in the leadership. They allow it. They tolerate it. Pastors who have had affairs and who move on and remarry. Pastors who are involved in homosexuality. Pastors who are unrepentant about what they're doing. Um, God doesn't tolerate that. And the church shouldn't tolerate that either. Sinful leaders provoke God. Here's the third sub-point. Sexual sin provokes God. Sinful leaders provoke God. Next, tolerating sin provokes God. Tolerating sin provokes God. So, uh, if uh, someone is involved in the sin, God is saying, they are provoking me. But if the leaders in the church are allowing it, God says, they are provoking me too. It's the person who's sinning and those who are tolerating the sin that are provoking God. And listen, sometimes in the name of love or mercy or patience, God's people tolerate sin in the lives of believers. They justify it. Uh, I'll never forget it. My wife was friends with someone and... and uh, Her friend was getting involved in, uh, she was divorcing her husband unbiblically and she was moving on to somebody else. And all of her small group friends were saying, that's all right, you're doing the right thing, he's a big jerk, go for it. Her Christian friends, 
they're tolerating it and justifying it. And my wife was the only one who sat down with her and said, hey, it's sin. I'll show you where in the Bible. And, uh, and that meeting didn't go so well. Tolerating sin provokes God. And don't be deceived. If there's someone in your circle of influence who is getting into sexual sin, it's your job to confront them, to help them get out of it. There's nothing loving about letting a person stay in that sin. Check this out. This is a video of a high-speed uh, car collision, but it's, it's shown in slow motion. And as you watch this, ask yourself, if your loved one was in that car, maybe your newborn, maybe your 10-year-old, maybe your wife, if, uh, if your loved one was in that car, how long would you let them sit in that car? before you went up to him and said, get out. This is not going to a good place. You need to get out now. How long would you wait? How long would you try to not offend them? How long would you try to make them feel like you're not judging them? Because that's the destruction that sexual sin is bringing into their life. And the longer you allow them to sit there, the more pain is coming. Sexual sin provokes God. Sinful leaders provoke God. Tolerating sin provokes God. But What's sad is believers justify the sin. You'll hear believers say, well, I I prayed about it, and I have peace. I prayed about it, and I have peace. Well, if you pray your way into sin, you're not talking to God, you're talking to yourself. You haven't convinced God to allow sin, so you've only talked yourself into sin. And if you coat your sin in prayer, uh, you're giving your sin just basically a veneer. It's, it's like a chocolate-covered cockroach. It's still a bug. It doesn't matter if you cover it in prayer. And too often, Christians try and justify sinful decisions by saying, well, I prayed about it and I have peace. Churches try and justify sin. How do churches poorly handle conflict? Well, I've been in a church where they vote over church conflict, all in favor of doing the Bible, all in favor of not doing the Bible. Looks like the not doing the Bibles have it. Let's not do the Bible. Voting over church discipline? That's an awful idea. You do it. Um, Other churches sadly take this too extreme and they go on a witch hunt trying to find every sin in the body and purge it from... That's not good. But most churches just avoid it. They just avoid it. Our church follows the directives found in Scripture about church discipline. Matthew 18 would be an example where you go to a person, you tell them, hey, this is sin, you need to let it go. If they don't listen, you bring one other person. Um, And then if they don't even listen, then you have to tell it to the church. Um, then you have to put them out of the church so the church doesn't get judged, and so they wake up and find out that they're headed for destruction. It's called church discipline. Um, It's a biblical thing. Our elders have had to do it maybe two, three times since we've been a a church, and I can tell you that our elders are so incredibly gracious and patient when we actually have to sit down and start this process. They pray fervently for people. They help them to see the outcome of their way. They help to give hope that Christ can actually fix this. They don't have to go down the sinful road. Uh, But sadly, two or three people have just turned away. And we've had to tell them, well, then you need to leave. You can't be here uh, because God's judgment is coming on you. And you can't pretend to be a Christian and have this in your life. And it's sad when those people move on and find a new church home in no time. And nobody there confronts them. Stop tolerating sin in my church. Here's the second thing. You can write this down. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. If I choose to sin, I am choosing to suffer. 
Stop tolerating sin in my church. Choose to sin. Choose to suffer. Check out verse 21. It says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. He gave her time. Can you even imagine that? If we had a women's ministry leader who was doing that, he gave her time? How gracious our God is that he would give even a blatantly sinning leader time to repent. He's laid it on her heart. What you're doing is wrong. Somebody's told her what you're doing is wrong. She still keeps doing it. He's like, I gave her time. Time's up. Time's up. There does come a point where God has warned you enough. Time's up. There's no stopping his judgment at that moment. This woman couldn't stop it. His judgment would fall. And maybe there's a person, maybe there's a couple people here today where this is the point where you've taken God to. Time's up. And I just hope that as the pain pours into your life over the next several weeks or months that you realize time's up. God gave you time and you wasted it. But there's more people, thankfully, where God says, In verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her work. So the most of the people still had a chance. Like we're talking like days, like couple, like month maybe to fix it, or they're going to be judged too, but they still have a chance, and maybe that's you today. Maybe God's giving you a last chance here to let go of your sexual sin or to repent before he brings Great tribulation. The word means anguish, distress, crushing together. Jot this down. God's patience will run out. God's patience will run out. He's judging the leader now first. He'll be judging the congregation soon. Soon. Why do Christians continue in sin? It's because we really believe God won't judge us. Maybe we have wrong theology. Maybe we think, well, my sins were paid for at the cross. So as long as I say I'm sorry after I do it, God will keep forgiving me. No, you're turning grace into a license to sin. And God will show you that that's not what the cross is for. Okay? That's not what the cross is for. Jesus didn't go to the cross and have nails driven through his wrists so that daily you can bring more nails and drive them through his wrists. That's not what he was there for. He was there to set you free from the power of sin. He was there to free you to a life of righteousness. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty to 32 says this, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died, because they were sinning. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are dis- disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Meaning, when you're sinning sexually, God would rather pour great tribulation into your life and watch you suffer and even allow you to die. I'd rather take you out of this world right now than allow you to fulfill that course and be condemned with the world. That's God's activity in the church. That's your God. Christians don't think God's patience will run out, but it will. Jesus judges sexual sin in the church. Jesus will judge sexual sin in this church. What was the judgment? Well, write this down. God's judgment will be horribly painful. God's judgment will be horribly painful. Uh, She and the people who were sexually active with her were going to be judged with sickness, deathly illness, and pain. In other words, he says, I'll take away their health. Okay, now, just to be clear, not all sickness is judgment from God. In fact, most sickness is not judgment from God. 
Okay, if you woke up with the stomach flu, it's probably not a judgment from God. Most sickness is not a judgment from God. It's just an effect of the fallen world. So if you're really sick, probably not God's judgment, but maybe. Sometimes God does judge us with sickness. Early on in our church, we did a, um, we did a curriculum called Downpour. Downpour was uh, all about seeing our sin, going to the Lord, repenting, and finding revival. Well, there was a college student in our church who went through that downpour series and was involved in sexual sin and refused to give it up. We said, hey man, you just went through this series where we talked about the holiness of God and his justice and righteousness and judgment. You've you got to let this go. No, I'm not going to let it go. And I actually said to this kid, listen man, you're holding up your middle finger in God's face. So he left our church. It's funny how when people won't let go of their sin, they drive away everyone who's telling them the truth. That's what they do. And he went on and he chose his sin and he chose to suffer. Months went by. Uh, we reached out to him and said, hey, let's connect again and see how you're doing. And when we, when we met for lunch, this kid looked like he was dying. He had some sickness. I don't remember if it was thyroid or whatever, but he looked awful. He had lost all this weight. His skin tone was horrible. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. He lost his job. He lost his driver's license with the government. He dropped out of school. He was living with his parents. He was in total misery. And we knew exactly why. God was judging him. And I said, hey, I tried to warn you, man. You just went round one with God. Do you really want to go round two? Do you really want to go round two? And thankfully, that whole relationship he was in broke off. And a couple months later, he said, hey, can we get together and meet? And he told me God brought everything back online. They found out what was wrong with his health. He got back into school. He got his license back. God, like, gave him everything back. But listen, God crushed him. And that's what God does to the people who get involved in sexual sin. Now, for this woman, God decided to make an example of her to all the churches. He says in verse 23, he goes on to say, I'll throw her onto a sickbed in verse 23. And he says, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. The Bible in 1 Corinthians says, if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. And God chose to make a severe example of this woman. He took the lives of her children as punishment while she was dying herself. This is a stiff, severe rebuke so that all the churches see, without any confusion, how God feels about sexual sin among the leaders in the church. You might ask yourself, how could God do that? I mean, the kids, really, they didn't do anything wrong. Hey, listen, don't be fooled. Dads, if you get involved in sexual sin, your children will suffer. Uh, Moms, if you get involved in sexual sin, God will not protect your children from the effects of your sin in their lives. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. They will suffer too. And it's a lie to believe they won't. It's a lie to believe that God will somehow still pour all of his blessing on those on your family members. The truth is, sin always has casualties. You will always bring your loved ones in harm's way when you choose to sin in this area. And in this case, this is very rare that God would do this. You have to understand when there is a special case. Whatever it was about this woman or what she was doing or how she was doing it, God brought the most severe judgment on her. He didn't threaten this of the congregation. This was just for her. He took the lives of her children. Is that really our God? Can we really follow a God like that? 
Well, you have to understand, God doesn't always judge sin this severely. He always judges sin more severely than this. Eternal torment. This is a lesser punishment aimed to wake up a church that's deceived before they end up in eternal torment. This is a grace that he's shaking them awake and showing them what her sin has earned her so that they will repent. The real Jezebel in the Old Testament had 70 kids. They were beheaded. They were beheaded. They were from the family. Jezebel herself was pushed out of a window, run over by chariots. She was eaten by dogs and only her skull remained. That's who this woman reminded God of. Number 16, Korah's rebellion. Korah and a few other leaders in Israel rose up against Moses. Um, and a few of the leaders went to the tabernacle and they wanted to, sh- they wanted to show that they're better leaders than Moses. So they brought this offering and they were standing in front of the tabernacle. Korah and his family didn't go for whatever reason. They were still at the tent. So while those teachers are rising up against Moses, false leaders, misleading the people, holding the fire of offering there, Moses went up to Korah's tent and said, everyone, everyone back up from their tent. Everyone step away from Korah's tent. And the Bible says that he and his family and all who were with him and his little ones came out and the ground opened up and swallowed them and closed back over them and all the Israelites ran for their lives terrified. While that was happening, those who were over here offering a false offering rises up against Moses. Fire burst forth from the tabernacle and consumed them into ashes and rubble. They had to peel the metal things from the, sh- the ashes that remained of these people. That's how God feels about sin and the leaders. Is this the God we serve? You need to realize this is the God you serve. He judges sin severely. He flooded the world. God's judgment will be horribly painful. And he doesn't want you to come into judgment, which is why he's warning you. Sin always leaves casualties. God's grace is that he would warn you. His patience will run out. His judgment will be horribly painful. Here's the next one. God's image will be restored. Why is he doing it? He's doing it to restore his own image in the eyes of the church and the world. Verse 23, it says, They will know what? They will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I'll give to each of you according to your works. Meaning you're going to reap what you sow. It's guaranteed. He says, I want want the righteous people who are watching this sin and wondering, how could God do nothing? I want them to know they're right. And the people who are indulging in this sexual sin and thinking God's fine with it and telling others it's the best thing that ever happened, and I want them to know they're wrong. My image will be restored. So the church knows that I judge sin and I reward righteousness. Hey, God will judge sexual immorality in this church. So if you are choosing to sin in this area, you're choosing to suffer. And God doesn't want that for you. So let me ask you, are you guilty right now of being caught in sexual sin? Are there things in your life right now that you need to repent of? Is God saying to you, time's up, time's now, time to repent? Hey, are you not married but sexually active? It's time to repent. It's time to have the conversation that we're waiting until marriage. Are you doing sexual things with someone? Maybe not going all the way? It's time to repent. It's time to wait until marriage. Hey, are you having an affair? 
You think no one knows about it? Are you starting a relationship that's inappropriate? It's just texting. It's, it's just chatting. It's just it's nothing really. Is that going somewhere? Because God sees it. Have you hidden something about your sexual past from your spouse, never told them? You've got to repent. You've got to come clean. You've got to confess it. Hey, are you losing the battle with porn on a weekly basis? Do you have other people holding you accountable? Do you confess to someone when you've sinned? Hey, do you know what it's like to have your first week of freedom from porn? Have you had your first month? Have you had your first porn-free year? Have you gone five years without ever looking at it? That's the life Christ has for you. Freedom. Hey, have you repented of your prior sexual sin? What do I mean by that? I mean, when you come to the cross, you find forgiveness for every sin. That's called grace. There's nothing you've done sexually that Christ won't forgive. You can bring your sin Christ will forgive you and wash it all away. I don't know about you, but that's good news. I'm assuming everyone in here is guilty of sexual sin of some form. At the cross, we can be forgiven. Praise God for that. But see, the cross is the beginning of the healing process. Just because you go to the cross and you repent in general and ask God for forgiveness in general doesn't mean that you've actually done away with or brought grace to certain areas of your past. You're forgiven. The penalty of your sin is done away with. You're going to heaven forever. But the pain of your sin, the damage sin has done to your heart, that doesn't get fixed until you bring specific things to the Lord, ask for His forgiveness, and then allow His healing to begin. Meaning I come to the Lord and I say, before I was married, I did this, I'm repenting of that and asking for your healing power, the grace of the cross, to change this area of my heart. Why do I need to do that if I'm all forgiven? Because it's called sanctification. It's called the washing away of the damage sin has done over time. It happens over time. And too often, believers keep their past sin buried, and they've certainly never brought it specifically to God to ask for forgiveness or healing. They may have not even brought it to the person that they love. It's hidden in the darkness and sexual sin ravages your soul the damage cannot be undone in an instant the beginning of that damage being undone is when you bring it into the light maybe your sexuality right now or your marriage perhaps is suffering because you haven't fully brought that area to god and asked his grace to redeem it you can You can find forgiveness, whatever you're afraid of. You can find forgiveness by bringing it to Christ and by bringing it into the light. That's how the healing starts. Listen, Jesus wants to bring pure joy into this area of your life. He wants to fill this area of your life with no grief, with pure joy, but he has to do a work. You have to open this up to his lordship and his truth. You must repent Well, the first point is stop tolerating sin in my church. The second point is choose to sin, choose to suffer. And here's the last one. It'll be much more brief. Cling to the good, repent of the bad. Cling to the good, repent of the bad. He's now talking to those who are repentant or who are walking the moral road, and he's encouraging them to stay on it 
He's giving reassurance that anyone who's walking in the light will never be turned away. I love these verses. It says in verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. See, so she was saying these are the deeper things. This is how you get moving in your spiritual journey. And and, uh, Jesus is like, no, these are the deeper things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Write this down. Don't cave into pressure. Don't cave into pressure. Doctrinally, sexually, don't cave in. So many college students have said to me, what's the point? All my friends, nobody's living it this way. It's like a joke. God gives us all these desires and we can't do anything with it. Hey, don't cave in. Don't cave into the lies. God's way is the way that's going to lead you to the maximum pleasure and joy. Only hold fast until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Wow. Write this down. Because you will rule with me. Cling to the good, repent of the bad. Don't cave into pressure because you'll rule with me. Drawing from imagery here in Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, Jesus says that he will rule over the nations and he will share in that rule with us. Meaning he wants to welcome you into his eternal kingdom. You will have a position of power and dignity and glory. And you're sacrificing that for so little. He says... In verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. I think the one interpretation of that is Christ himself. Uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hey, don't cave in. You'll rule with them. Christ is coming back to rule the universe and anyone who sets themselves up as God's opponent will be crushed and destroyed, but Christ has better things for you. Revelation twenty two twelve says, Behold, I'm coming soon, soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Hey, listen, you and I, we're going to reap what we sow. Today, Christ is speaking to you. And he's saying, repent of your sexual sin. Time's up. My judgment is here. Turn away from it. Turn to me. You'll rule with me in heaven forever. That's what I want for you. Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you would talk to us about an issue that's so relevant and personal. Lord, I know that as I, as I preach... This sermon draws up the uh, pain from the past that so many have experienced. Um, It's never comfortable to face our own failures. So thank you first and foremost that at the cross we can find grace to cover all of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done away with our sins and put them as far away from you as the east is from the west. Father, don't allow the enemy to draw up false condemnation. Don't allow your people who have truly repented to drag their hearts back through the mud. Thank you that you have given us redemption. But Father, I know there are those who have not dealt with their past. I know there are those right now who are in it. This is them. They're guilty as charged. Pray that they would find help, Lord. Pray that they would seek it out this week. Pray that they would respond to this terrifying letter knowing that you have judgment stored up for the guilty, but blessings stored up for the righteous. 
Lord, I just pray that you would release people from bondage to sin, perhaps that they've been enduring for decades. Lord, I pray that you would bring into the light what is hidden in the darkness. Lord, I know it's unfortunate, but there are some even now whose hearts are too hard, they won't listen. Father, I pray that your judgment would convince them that your word is true. I pray that you would drive it out, even if they try and hide it. And I pray that you would be glorified when you keep your word. But Father, to those who are humble and broken, meet them, meet them here. Give them hope of an eternal future with you in triumph. Lord, I just give a moment here of silent prayer and reflection for your people to talk to you. Father, for your patience. Thank you that you're abounding in love. Thank you that you're willing to forgive. Thank you that you are true to your word. Thank you that you store up blessing for the righteous. Hear the prayers of your people. In your name we pray.